Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Today's episode is brought to you by Deloitte Digital. Stay tuned after the podcast for insights on elevating the human experience. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek. With me as she is each week is Kamiko McCoy, our social editor and co-host on the podcast. Kamiko, always a pleasure. Always, always. Happy to be here. Um, we've also got back Diana Pearl, staff writer who covers the brand marketing world uh, here at Adweek. Diana, great to have you back. Thanks. Good to be here. And we've got relative newcomer uh, to at the Adweek newsroom, Ryan Barwick, uh, a staff writer who covers the travel, hospitality, uh, tourism, uh, you know, industries, kind of a fun crossover there. Ryan, it's great to have you on. It is great to be here. I really appreciate it. And uh, already, uh, Ryan's written some really fantastic articles. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about some of the trends there in sustainability with travel uh, and a few other issues that he's already been covering. Uh, I, Ryan, I don't know if you know this. I don't know if we've talked about it. I used to actually work in travel and tourism marketing, like in my pre-ad week life. I was a copywriter on several tourism accounts and travel accounts and worked on destination marketing. So it's Ooh. it's been interesting, like being on both sides of that equation, uh, but it's <laughs> fascinating industry. So we will talk more about that. Today, we're going to be talking a quick update on the, the chicken sandwich situation from last week. Uh, big thank you to everyone who tolerated listening to me eat a sandwich on audio last week, which is, uh, you know, just the high quality audio content that we're known for here. Uh, and uh, we're also going to talk about influencers. Uh, and Diana is kind of our in-house influencer expert and get a state of influencers on that. We're going to be talking to Ryan, as I mentioned, about some trends in travel. And uh, yeah, so we got a lot to cover today. So let's dive in. Chicken sandwich update, everybody. Um, they're sold out. They're sold out. Uh, Popeye's is officially out of the chicken sandwiches. Uh, some people probably were able to find a few left after they announced it because they said by the end of the week. Um, and if you're listening to this, it would probably be the week prior uh, that they uh, officially ran out. They posted on Twitter um, Hey, we're sold out. Big thanks, everybody. We never expected this. Uh, You know, basically, they went through two months of supply in two weeks. Uh, You know, they had optimistically, I think they said aggressively, uh, (laughs) you know, kind of scheduled how much uh, chicken sandwiches they would need to have prepped in advance. Uh, And they they were nowhere close uh, because of the phenomenon that became the Popeye's chicken sandwich. Kamiko, one thing I wanted to ask you about is that they quickly followed up this like, hey, we're sold out. Sorry, everybody. We'll be back soon. Quickly followed up with, by the way, if you want to be the first to know about when the chicken sandwich is back, download our app. 
<laughs> and as we've talked about, they are owned by the same company that owns Burger King. Burger King has done a lot to build up their apps. They have really kind of driven the app downloads as a major aspect of their marketing. But this time around, it kind of seemed to rub a lot of people the wrong way. What did you think of that approach uh, of kind of following up right away being like, download our app if you want to be the first to know? <sighs> Yikes. One, I would like to say that I have a personal beef now of Popeyes because I feel like that was my spot as the Atlantan, a Southern, and they ran out. And I was not allowed to have any of that good, good chicken. Um, but what I will say about the – I could see how it was a good idea to ride the wave. I think if I had been on their marketing social strategy team, that that probably would have been my my intuition to do as well. Um, but the thing is you have to keep in mind is that the Popeye's movement on social started so authentically, so underground, grassroots, word of mouth. Like there wasn't like this huge campaign push behind it. So to follow up with something like that that's inauthentic and it's now all of a sudden it's just like you remember that Popeye's is a brand. You remember that they have a marketing team. You remember that they have a marketing scheme. And it just is like it's kind of jarring is what I would see it as. Diana, do you think that they risk some backlash here? I think what's fascinating to me, and and we wrote about this and we embedded you know quite a few of the kind of Twitter reactions they're getting, but you build up this momentum as a brand, which every brand dreams of. But then to run out, you know, like when IHOP does IHOP, they don't run out of burgers, right? When when Old Spice has a big campaign blow up, they don't run out of body wash. Like it's really unheard of for a national main, mainstream product to, to just run out. And that's good, right? I mean, it's good to have that kind of high demand. But on the other hand, they've built up all this like momentum and goodwill. And now they just have to sit there on ice for a few weeks. What what do you think – how would you describe kind of the position that Popeyes is in now? Yeah, I do think they are in a tough position, and I think it kind of speaks to the fact that this was pretty organic and unexpected um, that they – because, yeah, who wants to run out when you're in the middle of, you know – I can't remember a time in my life where Popeyes has ever had this much attention, not that I was, you know, paying attention to, to fast food buzz when I was, you know, in high school. But, um, yeah, I definitely think they're in, like, a kind of funny position, but, you know, maybe that this – the shortage will actually end up creating even more buzz because now people can't get it and there's nothing people want more than something they can't get. Um, so when it comes back, it might make for an even bigger splash and this is kind of gets to be another event for them um, rather than if the sandwich was always available and people could just go get it whenever. Um, now they have a reason to get people excited and people like it's something happening rather than just it being popular and it selling out, which can only you can only kind of sustain that story for so long. Yeah. And I think, again, you have to keep in mind, it's just like they this I don't think this was something that they planned for. This was something like we were all at this new chicken. And but I don't think they expected to have the amount of attention that they got for it. Yeah. Like you can ride the wave afterward. But like I would imagine if you didn't have any type of pre-planning and, and, you know, beforehand that it would be tough to kind of capitalize on that type of thing. Yeah. I still don't get how they sold out because don't they have other chicken products? It's I mean, like, if you know anything about Popeyes, I they're don't, not super so. <laughs> reliable on having anything in the kitchen. Got it. Ever. Got it. Okay. I, I'm not yeah. a pop loyal Popeyes customer. I'll, I will. I admit. mean, if if all the equipment is working, that alone is a good day. And then if the person behind the counter acknowledges your existence, you're really having an A plus Popeyes experience. So all in all, like, I was actually pretty impressed. And and there've been a lot of horror stories coming out of just. The intensity that the workers were going through. I mean, anyone who stopped by Popeyes knows that they're, to your point, this has never happened at Popeyes. Like, and and on their best days, they really struggle sometimes with kind of just. And I'm not making fun of them. I just don't think it's ever been a a chain that really prioritized customer service in the way that like a Chick Fil A does. Um, 
But the you know, but the chicken's always been really good. And so to be clear, you know, they're sold out of these chicken sandwiches, which are a very specific kind of thing. Uh, they still got plenty of chicken. Uh, and maybe they will still continue to get spillover. But the day I was there and the, when we recorded our last podcast, they called out, is anyone waiting for something other than sandwiches? And one person raised their hand. And I mean, the restaurant was full, like standing room only. So people are there for that sandwich. Um, the, Kamiko, I'm curious, you, you brought this up. Uh, you know, the, 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 there are, to me, there are two aspects of this that are underappreciated when people talk about it. One is the impact that black Twitter had on this, which we've talked about, um, and that, uh, and, and I think it's really underappreciated because people who aren't on Twitter are like, no, that didn't have any effect on me. Uh, I saw it organically. And I was on CNN this morning talking about this specific issue. And I got some responses on Twitter from, you know, white people basically saying like, no, no, I don't follow black Twitter. And I heard all about it. Well, you know, that's the thing is that you don't have to follow it personally for it to have a huge impact on culture, right? You don't. And I feel like that speaks to a lot of the power of black Twitter. Um, that's kind of like the fodder that started it. So it's the, the kind of the same thing where people are just like, oh, I don't subscribe to any news publications, but I get my news. And it's like, well, it's because a publication put it together and put it on Twitter or Facebook or newsletter or push alert or however you get it, you know. Um, so it's the same ideology there. I feel like just by kind of removing yourself from the original source does not mean that you're not going to catch a whiff of that good fried chicken news. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing blew up on Twitter. There were no ads yet, you know, just some social media posts, which were good organic posts. But the reason that they exploded uh, was because of how the black Twitter community really amplified it. And uh, so, yeah, it was just kind of interesting. But then the other thing that doesn't get enough credit is that the sandwich is good. And, and that, that sounds like common sense, but that's an important point that a lot of products get added to menus all the time. They're okay. They're fine. I think what has made this, in terms of lessons that marketers should take away for next time, it's like the product has to be really good or else you don't get that buzz or or, or you get the opposite, right? I just <laughs> want buzz, more people like, to be appreciative of Popeye's chicken. I feel like oftentimes it's left out of the fried chicken game when we're talking about it. They'll be like, oh, churches, oh, Mrs. Winners. And I'm just like, no, first of all, let's include Popeye's, put them at the top. Also, let's include Publix because they deserve their due diligence and their credit. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can't put out a product. Like, you can build up a hype around it, but to sustain it, you're going to need something that's good. I would just like to recommend uh, that anyone who's still just jonesing for that go to Bojangles, get the... What were they, the Cajun fillet biscuit? Mm -hmm. That'll do you right. That's a that's a good that's a good placeholder until you can get that chicken yeah. sandwich at Popeyes. Get a drink also with left. it with that biscuit, or there's going to be a placeholder in your throat. <laughs> this must be a, like a southern conversation. I don't know any of these places. <laughs> uh, now, now we'll start talking about Biscuitville. I think it's the one that's in it's in North Carolina. Um, anyway, I, yes, yeah, Southerners have many many opinions on fried chicken and biscuits. Uh, but yeah, to her point, Publix, the uh, grocery chain, honestly, is real, real good fried chicken. So I'm very lucky that you can throw a rock from my house and probably hit three really good fried chicken places. But we will move on past. I know everyone tunes into this show for their, their fried chicken reviews, but uh, we'll move on to other topics. Today's episode is brought to you by Deloitte Digital. Stay tuned as Amelia Dunlop, head of customer strategy and applied design, Deloitte Digital, talks about why human experience is different from customer experience and what makes it such a great opportunity for marketers. Diana, I think one of the most fascinating things about uh, what we've seen in um, 
with KFC, I mean, with Popeyes, but also with KFC too. So KFC, we didn't mention in the last segment. Uh, they launched their Beyond uh, Beyond Fried Chicken, uh, their plant-based, no-meat uh, chicken nuggets and chicken wings. Tested these in Atlanta, uh, and they sold out within a few hours because, of course, they did. And I think they wanted those headlines, right, to compete with to show they were still kind of holding their own against Popeyes, although those are really apples and oranges. <laughs> like when you talk about selling out one location of a test market versus an entire countrywide uh, stock – but in both of those situ- you know, both those scenarios, there were no seeding this with influencers. There were no real traditional ads, period. But I really thought it was interesting that both of these became social media phenomena without influencers having to really light the match on that. And it just got us thinking about kind of it's an interesting time to check in on the influencer marketing industry. Uh, what are some of the biggest topics as you cover this day to day? Where do brands really stand right now on influencers and which brands have kind of become reliant on influencers? Um. I think brands are more open to influencers than ever, and we're seeing more and more, you know, quote-unquote establishment brands um, really embrace influencers and make them a major part of their marketing strategy. Um, Just in their earnings call, Estee Lauder said that they're investing 75% in digital, and a big sizable chunk of that is going to influencers. And they said it's been something that's really paid off for their business, and, you know, um, it doesn't really get bigger, in in the beauty world at least, than Estee Lauder. Um, So I think that's a big sign of, you know, a a conglomerate and a a truly, like, establishment brand and company – that's embracing influencers. In terms of brands that are too reliant on influencers, I don't know. For that, I would think of, you know, a brand maybe like Revolve, um, which is an uh, – if, if you're not familiar, it's an e-commerce retailer that's really tor- targeted towards um, like I'd say older teens, like college age, 20s, you know, millennial women, um, all fashion. And they have really built their business on um, influencers. But at the same time, they're doing really well. They just filed for IPO. Um or it's, I, th- I believe they just filed or it's coming up. Um, and, you know, that's a brand that's like completely built themselves up on influencers. So I think that we're seeing, you know, more mainstream acceptance than ever um, of influencers. But there still are definitely people who are non-believers. But um, I think you're seeing that less and less within marketing departments and honestly more people who maybe are – I'd say outside the target demographic for influencer marketing, I think, are the ones that I see that that typically don't really get it. It feels like in certain categories like fast food and, and snacks and stuff that the brands want to be to be the influencer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like in, they, they want to kind of build up that, you know, Wendy's doesn't rely on other influencers. They try to be the influencer. But then I just don't think that works in categories like – uh, you know, whether it's cosmetics or fashion or travel, we can uh, drag Ryan into this too. Uh, you know, it just feels like there are certain categories where the brands will never be, you know, Delta is never going to be the caddy influencer on their own. They have to rely on uh, kind of these third parties to help provide their content. Ryan, what have you seen in terms of the way, the role that influencers play in, in modern uh, travel marketing and tourism marketing? Yeah, I don't know if it's as prevalent. I think it's because people kind of want to see themselves in these, like people want to envision themselves uh, at a resort or kind of sitting on the beach or in first class on a flight. I feel like an influencer kind of creates a separation. It's like an aspiring to instead of actually seeing uh, themselves experiencing that. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Diana, do you feel that there is – where are we on the authenticity scale here of influencers? Like do they seem to be getting more more 
grounded and authentic, or do they seem to be kind of just leaning into the Kardashian route of separating themselves into a, a different kind of cast of human being? I don't really think you can generalize and say, oh, influencers are being more authentic or less. The truth is that they're also, you know, as more people are more accepting of ever than influencers, there are more influencers than ever. You know, you have your Kardashians, uh, Kardashian wannabes, rather. You have the people who, um, you know, like, just all they do is like post photos of their butt, <laughs> to be frank, on Instagram. And, you know, they have Flat a lot of tummy tea, yeah, like you gummy ha- bears. You know, you have like the reality stars who who post, um, you know, ads that feel incredibly mm-hmm. inauthentic. But then you have, you know, bloggers or YouTubers who have been doing this for 10 plus years, have really loyal followings. Um, they're unwilling to take on brand partnerships that don't feel authentic to them. But, you know, at the same time, I don't know. One thing that I've been talking a lot about on Twitter this week is that Walmart has had an explosion of influencer partnerships. And I have seen so many bloggers who I've been following for seven plus years doing partnerships with Walmart. I have never heard these women talk about Walmart in the seven plus years I've been following them. They've never once mentioned shopping there. And just, you know, like you've been following someone for seven years. No, I don't know them personally, but you know where they shop and you you kind of feel like you know the you know at least the persona that they're putting out online. And um, I find it very hard to believe that a lot of these women are shopping at Walmart, particularly buying clothes at Walmart. I I truly I I don't believe it. And partnerships like that, honestly, they really irritate me because it's very inauthentic. You're clearly just doing it for a paycheck. Um, you know, some of these people, they don't even live in areas that have Walmarts. So it's not like you're running out to the store and you know, it's just it's like that really grinds my gears. And you do see a lot of that. That does happen. Um, does I think do I think that means that these people are 100 percent inauthentic? No. Um, you know, they do a lot of content that's not sponsored, that, you know, is very real and resonant and that I enjoy and that people that resonates with readers. Um, but I think that, you know, you are seeing more and more partnerships like that, you know, especially as more brands get into the influencer game. You know, I had never seen a Walmart influencer partnership, you know, three years ago. Um, And as paydays get bigger, I think, you know, a lot of times these people are like running a business by themselves and it's hard to turn down those big paydays, Um, you know, just in the name of, oh, well, it's not really a place I'd shop at. You want to hear a funny small world story about Walmart? Um, Before I started Adweek, so this is like 2007 or 8, uh, I was actually a big part of my job at an agency was doing what we would now call influencer relations or blogger outreach back then, right? And PR agencies were reaching out to all these mom bloggers who were blowing up and building these huge audiences. And they wanted them to like do work with these brands but not pay them. You know, they, they just wanted it to all be free. And that's fine. Like, you know, if you're pitching a newspaper or a news outlet, people like us get paid to to do this job, right, to produce content every day. Bloggers don't get paid. So that was kind of a big a big rift in the industry is a big lack of awareness is that brands didn't seem to understand a PR to people didn't really understand that these are different than journalists. Like they deserve to get paid because this is literally their job. Um, and so one, I had a real struggle selling clients on, I wanted to pay bloggers. I was like, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll disclose everything, but if we're going to ask them to do a giveaway or to host whatever, we should pay them a few hundred bucks, whatever. And it'll be a lot cheaper than an ad buy that would reach a similar audience. Well, anyway, like no one really bought into that uh, with me until Walmart. Walmart was really one of the first brands to say, 
yeah, we'll work with these moms and we'll compensate them and we'll build kind of lasting partnerships. They were working with an agency at the time called Collective Bias that really pushed this model uh, and really got, and I remember I interacted with a lot of the women who were running these blogs and man, they just loved Walmart. They lo- But to your point, these are women in, you know, small towns and suburbs. These were already Walmart shoppers. Um, and so that connection to them was not inauthentic and it was not difficult. And then it's like, hey, you get paid and you get visibility and you get all this. And so it's funny, in, in some ways, Walmart was a real early innovator in the influencer outreach space. It was when they tried to go beyond that audience, and which of course they want to, right? They want to reach new audiences. They want to reach younger audiences. That was when I think Walmart hit a wall yeah. of, of, of authenticity. Totally. And I like I don't even blame Walmart. Um, you know, obviously, if Walmart's trying to reach a new demographic, which I think they clearly are, um, like, the, yeah, of course, they're going to reach out to people that are outside, you know, maybe the the norm. It's more like I more think it's on the influencers for not, um, you know, sticking to their guns and doing a partnership with a brand, um, you know, that they they don't use in their real life and they would never shop at. Not to take it back to fried chicken, but (laughs) (laughs) I do do think um, part of it when it comes to Walmart wanting to partner, because you see Target partner with influencers pretty regularly. Yeah. Um, but I would imagine for a place like Walmart, kind of in the same sense of you have to have a product that's good. I think Walmart kind of struggles with the shoppers just by like the store setup sometimes, um, by not having a very, like, it's almost like they just have like the general big box feel. Like, I don't know what their, you know, like what their steez is, you know, it seems kind of lost. So I wonder if maybe they nailed that down, that they'd be able to hone in on more influencers. Yeah. You know, I wonder... Does For it, those of y'all who can't see, Ryan just raised his hand to be able to talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the new guy. I know. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to ruin the podcast. Um, does it feel more, Diana? Does, does it feel more authentic when you see an influencer uh, do the hashtag SpawnCon when they acknowledge? That this is sponsored content. Well, that's not about authenticity. That's about following the law. <laughs> <laughs> they are le- they, the Federal Trade Commission legally mandates that when you an influencer or someone on Instagram is paid for a post, they have to put hashtag ad or ha- like where they're not even supposed to put like hashtag sponcon. That is too vague. You have to do hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored and be very clear that this is an advertisement. So that's less about being authentic to me. Like the the ideal influencer partnership as like a consumer of influencer content is. You see someone talking about a brand on their own, and then then they do an ad with them. So it's like I already knew you liked it. Mm-hmm. I already knew you were you know a big fan of this partner or of this brand of this product, and then now it le- led the way into a paid partnership. You know that feels authentic. It doesn't feel like I'm being sold something that you don't believe in. Um, it feels like I'm I'm being sold something that you support and that you use in your everyday life. And it feels it just feels more organic to their content because they would be talking about it anyways. I feel like a real tipping point in that disclosure, you know, because a lot of people used to wonder, is the FTC really going to? They're not a heavy enforcement agency. Um, They really – and when they come down on advertisers traditionally, uh, you know, it's usually because of a recurring problem, right? Like something that the entire industry is doing. And so early on, the FTC was like, yeah, you need to disclose your influencers. They were mostly focused on celebrities. And so a lot of people felt like they could either slipped through the cracks or it just didn't occur to them that they had to follow these rules. And then the Lord and Taylor dress came along. Do you remember this? Yes. Diana? Yes. The the dress, the like black and 
I, well, I thought black and blue. It is a black and blue dress, or um, <laughs> no, uh, no, not the uh, not the BuzzFeed. Um, uh, you know, like what color oh. is this dress? But like the so Lauren Taylor. Uh, had this new dress come out. God, it's 2015, so I'm dating myself. It was four years ago. Um, but basically, they had this dress. I don't even know how to describe it. It's got a lot of textures going on. Um, I'm looking at a picture of it now. If you Google Lord and Taylor 50 Instagrammers, <laughs> they, so they basically got 50 Instagrammers to wear the same dress, and it sold out right away. Uh, they just flooded everyone's feed with these, you know, every fashion influencer of the moment was wearing this one Lord and Taylor dress. And then, man, the FTC came down hard because almost none of them had hashtag ad, even though this was after the FTC had already put out their requirements. And that was when they came in and they were like, no, this is – and the FTC was like, they let a lot of things slide. They didn't let that one slide. Um, And so that moment since then, I think a lot of these Instagrammers have realized like, oh, oh, the law does apply to me. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah, I definitely think people are paying more attention to those legalities than ever um, and are, you know, wanting to comply with them more. Um, And I think not just because the FTC is demanding it, but um, I think their followers are too. You'll see if something appears like an ad, you know, people will be commenting and being like, is this an ad? Or like, why aren't you disclosing that's an ad? Um, so I think their followers are are demanding it too. Although I always say that I I hate I kind of hate seeing when influencers say like in a Instagram post or whatever they're like this isn't sponsored I swear like and it it isn't sponsored but it's sort of like you shouldn't have to say that you know what I mean like because it should be obvious that if it's not disclosed then. It's not sponsored. But I do think that that also speaks to the fact that because there's been like murky territory about things being disclosed for so long that consumers don't entirely trust influencers to disclose it. So people feel the need to be like, I promise it's not sponsored if they're like really glowing about a a product. I wonder if this is a trend like that just happens in advertising um, just like – there's, like, a new way to advertise to people, and then, like, advertisers try to take advantage of it, and there's, like, backlash immediately by mm-hmm. being, like, I don't want to be sold to to my face. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think people, you know, and this speaks to, like, a greater advertising conversation, but, you know, people don't love being blatantly sold to. You mm-hmm. know, most people want to skip commercials on TV, and, you know, they don't love – being bombarded with ads, you know, on their God phone a and, and a pop-up ad. Yeah, like they don't like websites that are covered in ads, you know. So I think that's part of, you know, why influencer ads have been more successful because they are a little more um, – not more successful, than, but they, why they have been successful in general is they are a little bit more like ingrained. Organic. Yeah, yeah organic. Agreed. Good word. Let's let's talk about fraud. So, the, you know, the phrase influencer fraud comes up from time to time. You wrote about it very recently here. A, what do we mean when we say influencer fraud when it comes to marketing and advertising? And then and then B, like, what's being done about it? I mean, is it a serious problem, I guess? And then also what's being done about it? But first, what is it? Yeah, well, influencer fraud is basically when a brand pays an influencer or, you know, a platform or that sort of – any sort of thing that falls along those, along those lines, excuse me. Um, but – they pay for, you know, a certain level of reach or a certain level of engagement or follower count, and that follower count is actually falsified. You know, it's mostly bots or, you know, this person built up their um, engagement through like a paid service that where they get paid likes or, or that sort of thing. So kind of at its um, at its core, it's basically just brands paying influencers for marketing that really doesn't actually have results and impact because um, the influencers are falsifying what they can deliver. So to put it in like more traditional terms, it would be like if an NBC said, you know, we reach uh, 500 million households, you know, or not 500, sorry, like 50 million households throughout the U.S., you know, on Thursday nights. And 
that wasn't true. So it's sort of that thing, and then brands are paying for something that they're not getting. Um, It's a huge problem. It's an over $1 billion problem in the industry, and I think the bulk of that is because it's still so new, and there aren't a lot of ways for brands to check and make sure that, you know, an influencer's following is valid and not filled with bots. Um, Besides working with the platforms themselves and, you know— Obviously, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, these these platforms aren't known for being forthcoming about information. <laughs> so um, there's kind of a challenge there. Um, and I think there's still a lot being done to to figure it out. Well, well and I guess devil's advocate for the influencers, like, I, I don't know how many of my followers are bots, right? Like, um, it, and and even if they do know, what can they do about that? Right. Like, like unless they're going out of their way to lie, like the example you gave is if is if, you know, a TV network overstated their own audience. Um, But in this case, it's more like they're probably stating the correct audience numbers, but not necessarily accounting for how many of those are fake. Is there much they can do or am I just missing something about their role in kind of perpetuating these false numbers? No, you're definitely you definitely make a good point. And I do think there are just these platforms need to be better about controlling the number of bot accounts that exist. And, um, you know, Instagram, I know, has had a couple of times this year where they've Purged. done like done like a purge, um, which is good and good on them for, for doing that. But also there um, there are lots of services where people can pay to get followers. They can pay to get engagement. They can even do things like they pay for an automated service that will have their account commenting on other accounts, which mm-hmm. then will boost up their engagement because it sends people ba- that back to their account. Um, so even if that's sending people back to their account who are real, if that engagement all comes from, you know, a paid for service where you're not the one, you know, making the comments or, or doing whatever, um, you know, that's not really real influence either. Um, you know, I've even heard about, sorry, no the worries. farms actually, yeah. like, just like entire staffs of people that like it's their entire job to kind of like take the, take the audience engagement part upon themselves yeah. where they'll like make these fake accounts they'll find profile pictures for it and and everything but for for every one of those that there are there are also um websites that you can kind of use and i don't know exactly what their credibility is but that you can kind of plug in a username and it'll tell you well based on the engagement that we're looking at these are the predictions that we have for how many in this account are bots versus actual people totally yeah and services like that do exist but um you know only instagram itself is the one or or Twitter or YouTube um, or whatever whatever platform, um, they're the only ones who have the the real data. So yeah, so I do think it's it's tough because there are just bot accounts who are out there, and if you have five hundred thousand followers, you are just going to have bot accounts in your follower count. That like that's just going to happen, um, and it's kind of insane to expect an influencer to go and take out every bot account. But I think also you know. A, a great influencer. Maybe they have some bots, but that's not the majority. And, you know, the majority are people who are really engaged with their content. And those are the people that brands um, should be paying. I mean, this and this is a classic argument in marketing, right, is, is should you be paying for reach or should you be paying for engagement? And I think a lot of people, and this is where you see micro-influencers, nano-influencers, you know, is that the idea that these people don't have the huge bulk numbers, uh, but their audience is very engaged. And I think you're seeing more of a, to kind of go back to an earlier conversation when we had um, about the authenticity of influencers, is there is this kind of surge in like, I don't know the right term for it, but this kind of all-American influencer, like these people who are a little more approachable, a little more real, you know, they, they don't necessarily live in L.A., um, and you know, they're in Oklahoma city or they're in whatever. And it just, they, you know, we've written articles about this, that brands like partnering with them because their audiences are smaller, but they're more engaged. 
Uh, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's a problem that I don't think you can solve immediately with anyone. And it's a, it's a problem where there's almost no one at fault, uh, unless you're, again, unless you're actively lying about your reach or you're out there buying um, impressions, uh, you know, to that's traditional fraud, right? Is you're just kind of buying the numbers to help hit a goal that you were supposed to hit. Uh, but in this case, it's really just like being aware and just being knowledgeable of the industry that, yeah, if you're going to pay to reach 200,000, 200 million followers, like a solid 50 million of those are probably going to be bots. Totally, <laughs> yeah. totally. And I think for on brands, they really what they really need to do is do their homework. You know, um, don't just look at, you know, oh, one million followers and assume, oh, they're great. Like, look at the kind of community they've cultivated. You know, there are people who have a ton of followers but really have no sense of community on their page and – don't really have a loyal following despite the fact that they have all these followers. They might have just like started this early and, you know, had posts go viral on the Explore page back when that used to happen um, and rack up followers that way. But these aren't people who really care about them and are actively following. Um, They're just people who randomly clicked follow six years ago and haven't gotten around to hitting the unfollow button. So I think brands really need to be on top of doing their research and, you know, not just using follower count or even engagement rates is the only metric because – you know, things are changing. Instagram stories is obviously a huge part of the platform now, which means people spend less time in the feed and less time liking and commenting on photos. Um, so I think brands just need to to do their homework. Great. Well, thank you, Diana, for talking us through. I definitely encourage everyone. Check out Diana Pearl's articles on adweek.com. Uh, lots of great coverage of brands, of influencers. And uh, we didn't even, I feel like we just barely scratched the surface. So uh, you should have your own podcast just about what's happening with influencers this week. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's uh, let's move on and talk about travel. All right. Admittedly, this is largely just an excuse to drag Ryan in and talk about this. But, but the fact that we have a full-time writer covering the travel, hospitality, uh, tourism kind of worlds, and uh, I, I think says a lot about the role that this industry plays in marketing. Uh, you know, we're talking about some of the biggest brands on earth and uh, and every agency. Uh, if they don't have a tourism account or a travel account related or, a, God bless, a hotel account, you can get one of those. Man, that's a license to print money. If you don't have one of those, you want one. Like you're always pursuing one. So this is a huge part of the marketing world of what agencies go after. Um, Ryan, I'm curious, like if you were to summarize kind of the – the major issues facing these these travel marketers right now, and, and I can tee up one, but I'm I'm curious to see, uh, you know, what you think they're struggling with the most right now as as travel marketers as destination marketers. One is certainly sustainability. I think that's already come up a lot. I'm glad to see that coming up a lot already in your coverage. But uh, what else? What, what's really kind of top of mind with these brands right now? Um, that's a great question. I think just based on the conversations I've had so far, it's. Making the individual brands stand out, uh, trying to create a loyal following. Just using Delta as an example, not based on any interviews or anything, but what can Delta do to make a millennial go specifically to Delta as opposed to the cheapest ticket? And I think that can be seen across every industry. Same with hotels. What makes you want to stay in a Marriott as opposed to a Best Western? That sort of thing. Well, and it also feels like they're competing with the sharing economy. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, that's that the biggest thing I grapple with every time I'm traveling. And Diana Kamiko, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this, too. Like, when I – the first decision I make about where I'm going to go, other than where am I going to go, is where am I going to stay – and I tend to default to Airbnbs um, or, you know, or some equivalent thereof. 
And and that's got to be a terrifying thing if you're a hotel chain. Diana, what's your like what's your kind of default when you're traveling in terms of lodging? Um, it really depends on the type of group I'm traveling with. To be frank, if I could afford it, I would always stay in a hotel. Unless I was the only time I could think I wouldn't is if I was like going on vacation to like a beach town or an beach, like an island or something like that, not like a Caribbean island, but like a Martha's Martha's Vineyard or that sort of place, then I think it's fun to rent a house with your friends and like grill outside and that sort of thing. I love hotels. I love the luxury they provide. Even if I'm staying, honestly, at like a Holiday Inn, you know, you have the, maybe not a Holiday Inn, but like a Hilton or a Marriott, you have like the nice beds and you have the concierge and they can hold your bags for you. And, you know, you just have, there's like a comfort to staying at a hotel that I love, like I love it. So to me, I'm sort of like, you know, 10 years from now, I hope I'm never staying at Airbnbs. <laughs> but I do think Airbnb is great. And I honestly do now mostly default to that because um, it is a lot of times more affordable. And if you're traveling with like a group of friends, um, you know, a lot of times I travel with my best friend and her husband. So we like to do Airbnbs because then we can get a two-bedroom one where they have a room and I have a room. And that's it offers a lot of solutions like that that hotel rooms don't. Um, but I think there is something about hotels as particularly, I mean, like I love a luxury hotel. Um, not that I stay in them very much, but when I do, it is incredible. So um, I think there is something about them that Airbnbs, even I know Airbnb just rolled out the Airbnb Lux. Um, I just don't think they're ever going to be able to fully compete with the services that a hotel can provide. I, I also think the Airbnb can provide a more personalized experience where yeah. is if you have a very interactive host um, that kind of knows what they're doing and you can see that in the comments before you actually book anywhere mm-hmm. uh, that host can provide restaurant recommendations uh, guided tours throughout a neighborhood anything like that and I think hotels are now trying to catch up to to provide those experiences there I mean there's always been a concierge that can recommend thousands of things, but Airbnb makes it feel more personal. It's more on a, Yeah, it's a first-name basis. I would say Airbnbs uh, kind of remind me of like a bed and breakfast, but they come with an app now. Mm. Now you can book it through an app. Yeah. I don't know. Personally, I think hotels can provide those recommendations. They can hook you up. I don't know. They can. Yeah. I'm also sad to see like – so with the rise of Airbnb, you see more and more people are actually like renting out um, these spaces and like they'll do like these – Take like three or four bedrooms, rent them all out, and you kind of start to lose the experience of a personalized, which is kind of like how Airbnb started. So now it just becomes like this rigmarole process where they check you in. You don't have anybody there to check you in. Like, um, I don't know, you'd be the expert here, but they're like companies that will purchase yeah. these properties. Yeah. So the, the, oh, I feel like that's so much about Airbnb. I hate is it. Now. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's been reported before. Basically, large property owners will just buy an entire street. And turn them all into Airbnb uh, homes, and especially you see this a lot in tourist areas like New Orleans. Gentrification station. Exactly, exactly. Um, and yeah, but again, Airbnb is able to provide. You can see in the comments, it, you can see who's an interactive host and who's not. Mm-hmm. So you kind of know what you're getting for the most part if everything's working well. You know what you're getting before you get there. Yeah. Yeah, I I stay in a lot of Airbnbs, and the. I would say overwhelmingly they've been what you all were describing of they are not like it's not what Airbnb likes to paint the picture of. It's not just some nice young couple trying to make ends meet by renting out a a room or a space. It's always like you can tell they own 85 properties and they're just rotating between them. 
which supposedly does go against Airbnb's policies, but there's, uh, you know, nine million ways to not mention that. And I will say, though, that when you do stay at an authentic one, it's such a better experience and such a different experience. I My entire family just stayed at one in North Carolina where we had a pig uh, in the backyard. And, like, every single review was just, like, the pig is so great. <laughs> and and we just loved having the pig. And we could just, like, walk outside after each meal and just – and it was blatantly someone's house with all their stuff in it. They just, like, leave for a week while you're staying there. And they just tell you, like, you know, you don't have to feed the pig. Someone will come by and feed them, but you can if you want. Yeah. And, I mean, it was, it was great, but it was so different than every other <laughs> – Airbnb experience I've had where like you show up and they're like you you say oh are you Greg and they look at you blankly and like from the listing they're like oh yeah Greg (laughs) (laughs) I also think that Airbnbs do make it a lot easier for kind of like I said like groups of different sizes um you know I, I could see it being I don't have a family myself but um like being so much easier if you have kids you can put the kids in a different room like it's less cramped and obviously a lot more cost effective than getting like a hotel suite so um i think that that's a huge argument in their favor as well well and and let's talk quickly about amenities you know diana mentioned luxury uh what i've seen now big trend is i also stay in a lot of like more millennial focused hotels because i'm cheap and they they are all about the small amenities right like not the big sweeping luxury but like little things like they give you a plastic water bottle like a reusable water bottle when you check in or they have workout equipment in the room like you know just these small things that i'm sure come from some survey of what did millennials say they want uh ryan are are you seeing much in the way of kind of how hotels are adapting to to target millennials uh i i don't know if i can speak to how they're targeting millennials per se i again i think it all comes down to cost what is going to be the cheapest option i can only speak as a 24 year old journalist, uh, I, I know me and my peers, we're all considering costs when it comes to traveling, w- which airport I'm going to, whether it's going to be JFK or LaGuardia, it, it always comes down to cost. I, I will say with regards to the um, amenities, uh, Marriott announced yesterday that they are going to be uh, wiping out by the end of 2020 all their miniature um, shampoo and conditioner bottle. So, you know, that will be shipped. All those little amenities are going to be uh, extinct eventually. Uh, earlier this summer, IHG Intercontinental Hotel Group, uh, they announced that they too would be getting rid of their amenities as well. So I, I think that's also a trend kind of more in the uh, sustainability realm. Yeah, no, I know we're just about out of time, um, but it, any thoughts, big picture? You just wrote a big piece about how brand, how travel brands are really kind of trying to embrace sustainability without giving up a lot of those. What else are you seeing in terms of how they're prioritizing ways to at least show that they're addressing sustainability? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's not necessarily an airline's goal to be as environmentally friendly. I mean, it's an airline. That's, that's what they're doing. However, now that consumers are so focused on climate change, on being as environmentally conscious and as being um, as engaged as possible with these sort of things, that they have to they have to do something. They have to make some sort of announcement, whether that is getting rid of plastic straws or getting rid of mini uh, water bottles. At, at least they, if they're able to do that, then they can point to something when people say, hey, you know, th- the world is on fire. What are you doing? I, th- I think that's important. For these businesses. As Smash Mouth once said. So um, I would encourage uh, if you work in the travel marketing industry, if you want to reach out, Ryan, where can they reach you? Uh, you can reach me at Ryan Barwick on Twitter or uh, – wait, 
Should I put my email on the podcast? Yeah, whatever. Whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah, or you can email me at uh, ryan.barwick at adweek.com. I am open and willing to receive any pitches related to the travel sphere. I can always uh, delete the email. So feel free to send anything. <laughs> yep, Barwick is B-A-R-W-I-C-K. Uh, so thank you uh, so much for coming on the show, Ryan. It was great to – and welcome aboard Adweek. Of course. Thank you so much. It's it's great to be here. Diana, thanks uh, thanks for coming back on and talking influencers and chicken with us. And Kamiko, uh, thank you for being my fellow Southerner who can nerd out on this stuff. Always a pleasure. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Chris Ahrens with production assistance from Josh Rios and edited by Lane McGibney. Thank you to all three of them for all they put into the show each week. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts podcast from. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they help new listeners discover the show. You can reach us anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. I'm David Griner with Adweek, and we will be back next week. Welcome to Elevating the Human Experience from Deloitte Digital. Technology and change may be accelerating at an unprecedented rate, but we are not. We're still messy, inconsistent, and emotional. In other words, human. So why, when we do business, do we focus on customers? After all, we wake up as humans, not customers. What if marketers started thinking of us that way? Amelia Dunlop, head of customer strategy and applied design, Deloitte Digital, talks about how human experience, HX, differs from customer experience, CX, and why HX is such a great opportunity for marketers. Hi there. Um, My name is Amelia Dunlop. I'm a partner at Deloitte Digital, and I run our customer strategy and applied design business. And I'm fascinated by all things elevating the human experience. So my nine-year-old daughter was falling asleep the other night, and she asked me, Mama, what is the meaning of life? I've been thinking about it for a while, and I just wanted to know. And after I realized that she was serious, my first thought was, this is one of those parenting moments. I don't want to mess this up. So I told her two things, that for me, The meaning of life is about the experiences that create the possibility of connection with the people that we love, like the connection that she and I have. And that the question of the meaning of life is worthy of a lifetime's journey to answer. She seemed satisfied, hugged her little panda bear and kind of rolled over and went to sleep. But I thought about it, that even a small child would ask questions about meaning made me realize just how unchanging and how many present our humanity is, even as the technology and pace of change change so fast around us. The tools may change, but our humanity does not. Because before anything else, we are human, messy, inconsistent, and emotional. Lord knows I am. But in the business world, connecting with people has long been referred to as customer experience, or CX. At Deloitte Digital, we believe we don't wake up as customers. We wake up each morning to that first inspiring cup of coffee as humans. Or CX is rational and transactional. HX is emotional and values-based. That is why it is our aspiration to elevate the human experience. And we do this by creating new experiences that connect us, that make us feel more human. It is in these connections where we feel, to quote Brene Brown, seen, valued, and heard. Want to learn more about elevating the human experience? Visit DeloitteDigital.com slash US slash EHX for more insight.